me this morning to Paul's second epistle in the New Testament. We're going to read just a, um, a short passage this morning, but we will be looking at a, um, a greater portion of this chapter and the chapter that follows. I picked this, um, this passage in reflection upon the camp that we had. This was our theme verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It was a verse that um, those ministering to us and our young people teased out through sermon and lesson and activities. And so, uh, since that was selected, maybe nine, ten months ago, it's been a passage that um, that I've been living with kind of off and on throughout that time. And so, um, I felt it appropriate, having taken a week back from camp, to reflect upon this and to um, consider what the Lord would say to us through this passage of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 just verse 18. We read, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's no surprise to you that my favorite author is C.S. Lewis. And um, probably the most troublesome book that he wrote that I've read, with the exception of a book titled The Problem of Pain, which is a pretty troubling book to get through, uh, was a book that he actually wrote with his, uh, his wife, Joy Davidman Gresham. As her cancer was in remission, they, I believe, stole away to Ireland and spent some time. And there he penned this book, Till We Have Faces. If you have not read it, I don't want to say that you should, but you might want to. Um, it's a, um, it's, it's subtitled, A Myth Retold. It's actually the story of Cupid and Psyche told from the perspective of Psyche's psychotic sister and it's a it's a fascinating book it's a book that uh, I have read on before and to be honest coming to the end of it I thought I'm not sure exactly what all he's trying to say here um, but that's always good to find in a book I guess but he wrote this book till we have faces he considered it his favorite probably because he wrote it with his wife but he considered he considered it to be the best of his work and is very favorite to have written. My mind went back to the title of that book, Till We Have Faces, as I was reflecting upon this passage of Scripture. Because in the ancient world, a face meant something. A face was something of intimacy. It was something of, it was something really of the soul. 
A face represents one's beauty, one's soul, one's self. When someone mentions to us a name that we recognize, what do we try to do? We try to put a face to that name. We don't try to put a foot to the name. We don't try to remember, oh, that was the guy who wore the, the green Nikes, right? Oh, it was the guy with the beard, or the guy with the mustache, or the guy with the beard who couldn't grow a mustache, or didn't he have green eyes? He had a unibrow, maybe. We think of the face. And it's important that we do that because your face is something that is intimately tied to who you are. In fact, in the ancient world, specifically in the Greek-speaking world, a person was their face. The word for a person in your New Testament is face. Prosopon. We... Uh, inherit the word person from the Latin persona, which was simply a mask. It was a theatrical term. And, you know, any one person could take on any number of personalities. They could just put on a mask and they would become another person. In fact, in the theatrical world of, 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 uh, of Roman times, you know, the men would always play the parts. The men, the women, whatever. All they had to do was grab a persona, a mask, and put it on. But in the Greek world, the world of the New Testament language, a person was not merely a mask. It was not an outer shell. A person was a face. It's interesting that Lewis chooses this title, Till We Have Faces, to tell the story of Cupid and Psyche because Cupid, of course, you know in the Greek world was the god of love. And psyche is where we get psychology, psychoanalysis, psyche. It is the soul or the self, the innermost being of a person. And so you have this story told of this, this love shared between the god of love and a soul or a self. And he gives it the title, Till We Have Faces. I, um, I'm a bit of a Lewis junkie, and I consider myself a bit of an amateur scholar of Lewis. Um, I don't want to presume too much, but I think what he's getting at with the title of this book is, is the idea of becoming a person, becoming what God has intended us to be. Hopping back to our text with that image in mind of a, a face and the importance of a face in the ancient world. Consider what Paul says as he writes to his Corinthians. He said, We all, with unveiled face, a veil having been removed from our face, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is Paul's second New Testament epistle to the Corinthians, although he specifically mentions in this that he had actually written a letter, perhaps even two, but at least a letter between his first 
epistle, and this his second epistle. And he writes of that letter that was being sent to the Corinthians as being a letter written in pain and anguish. A letter written, not regretfully, but the feelings that he had and, 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 and the, 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 the trouble that existed between he and his hearers here was something that he very much regretted. And so he wrote that letter to try to make amends with this early church. He described it as a, a letter of deep pain and deep anguish, a, a letter that was hard for him to write and send. But he says to them that he thankfully sent it because he believes that through it, their relationship had been restored. Paul, in this second epistle, is a man very acquainted with pain. Very acquainted with suffering. But it's interesting, the pain and the suffering with which he seems intimately familiar in this one is an internal pain, an internal suffering. He doesn't, he, he's, he doesn't complain about the scourgings and the shipwrecks. He doesn't complain about all the things that would come later in his life. He doesn't complain about all the physical ailments that he must have suffered. But he writes about these relational hurts. He writes, in fact... In, um, in the first chapter, a, uh, in a passage that I often allude to in my prayers in behalf of, of others who are going through trouble, the, he calls God the, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says, He comforts us in our troubles. And he goes on to tell them, Look, I was in such despair that I even despaired of life. I thought I had reached the end of life itself. My pain was so great. He's a man who is acquainted with suffering, acquainted with hurts, acquainted with the problems of life. And he says here that we, with unveiled faces, are beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed. As we look to this passage and consider what he's saying here, I want to consider three notes of extreme importance that I believe he's getting at. The first is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And in relationship to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, he uses an image of an unveiled face. He's in the verses prior to this single verse here in chapter 3. He has been reminding them of a veil that was worn by Moses. And our minds ought to race back to the events of Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus chapter 34. It's in 34 that we read about the veil of Moses. But that story really begins in chapter 20. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. And the people had been left behind down at the foot of the mountain. They had prepared themselves. And Moses receives the law of God. And when he has received the law of God and he's been up there for some time, he returns back to the encampment. And what does he find? He finds a golden calf. Not just some idol that Israel is worshiping, 
But Aaron specifically tells the people because they're restless. Moses has been up there. What in the world is he doing? He's meeting with Yahweh and our leader is gone. What are we to do here? And so the people become restless and they tell Aaron, make for us a God. And he tells them, bring all your earrings, bring all your fancy jewelry, bring all your gold and we're going to melt it down. And Aaron tells Moses, look, I just threw the gold in the pot and boom, the calf showed up. It was a miracle. But what he tells them, Aaron tells Israel, behold Yahweh. This is Him. This is not just some God for you to serve. This is your God. This is what has led you out of Egypt. Now remember, when they were leaving Egypt, God instructed the people to spoil the Egyptians, to... He said, look, it's going to be so bad. The plagues are going to be so horrendous that when you leave, you're not leaving empty-handed. You're going to be able to go and take their gold. They're going to say, look, yeah, here, here, take what you want. And so Moses, in anger, cast the stone tablets to the ground, those Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as it literally reads in Hebrew. And what does he do? He goes back up the mountain. He meets with God again. He intercedes for his people. And this time, when he returns, having met with Yahweh in chapter 34, we find he returns back to the encampment and the people are astonished at how his face is glowing with the radiance of God. So much so, they don't want to look at it. Put a veil over that thing. We, we can't look at that. It, it rem, and one, it reminds us of how holy this God is. Number two, it reminds us of how unholy we are. But Paul says that that glory of Moses' face, that face that was veiled, is a, is, a, is a passing glory. In fact, it has indeed passed away at the writing of this letter. He says, there's a veil that still remains upon the people of Israel. When they look to the Scriptures, they still don't see what's there. They still don't understand what it's all about. And he says, that veil is taken away in Christ because Christ is the, is the supremacy of our redemption. He is the supremacy of God's revelation to us. He is what all of revelation is about. He is what all of salvation is about. In the symphony of Scripture, there is one motif, and that is Jesus. And He recurs over and over again. And everything leads to Him and everything reflects back upon Him. Paul says that we have faces that have been unveiled. He speaks of that glory on the face of Moses, and he says that glory was a passing glory. And in speaking of that glory and the glory that has surpassed it, he brings to their mind the two covenants of God. The old covenant which had passed away, and the new covenant that God had promised to His people, that He had fulfilled to His people. And it's interesting, the language that he uses in the, the early parts of chapter 3 here in this epistle, the language that he uses and the, the, the way he contrasts 
the old covenant and the new covenant. It's, it is graphic. It is beautiful. It is something that really in trying to narrow down a passage to read, it, you keep wanting to, well, let's include that too because that's leading to it. Well, let's include that too. But he gets on, I call him a Pauline tear. He gets on that, that you know, he's going, he's going, he's going, he's not stopping. But I want to go and look back at some of what he says in chapter 3 as he contrasts these two covenants. He says that the old covenant was written on tablets of stone and all throughout he's using very metaphorical language. He's using very graphic and imaginary language. The, the, the old covenant had been written on tablets of stone and the new covenant's been written on hearts of flesh, putting together the idea of cold, dead, lifeless stone and warm, beating Hearts of flesh. He says the Old Covenant was about the letter of the law. Something that's objective and something that's out there. Something that, that, is, that is external and cold. He says the New Covenant is about the spirit of the law. The spirit who has come in to write God's law on our hearts of flesh. He compares the Old Covenant to a ministry of condemnation. Israel stood at the mountain and they knew their unholiness. They knew when Moses read those ten words to them that that was the, the antithesis of what they found in their hearts. They found in their hearts stone. They found in their hearts simply wanting to live by a letter. Tell me what to do, Moses, and I'll do it. Poorly, but I'll do it. It says that old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. Whereas in the new covenant we find a ministry of righteousness. A ministry in which our hearts are able to be transformed. And our hearts are able to be made new as God writes His law on our hearts of flesh. He says the old covenant led to death. The new covenant brings life. He says, that old covenant, don't get me wrong, he says, it was glorious. It had glory. Moses' face was shining with the glorious radiance of that covenant. But he says that glory was a passing glory and it has been surpassed by the new covenant, which is the surpassing glory. And he says, our faces have been unveiled and we are beholding the glory of God. He says as we're being transformed even from one degree of glory to the next. And he says this all happens when one turns to Jesus. This all happens because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Our veils are torn away. And our faces are able to behold. With that in mind, Paul then turns our attention to the work of the Spirit. And he has something to say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what he has to say, the image he uses is the idea of a transformed face. In Christ we have unveiled faces, and because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit we have transformed faces. Our faces are not just ushered into the company of heaven, our faces are transformed. Our persons are genuinely redeemed and made new. He says we're being transformed into that same image. And I went and I looked. He hasn't used that word image. Again, it was the word icon in the Greek, in the Greek terminology. He hasn't used that term icon prior in this epistle. So what's he talking about? He uses that term again in chapter 4. 
he says that, um, and, and I've, I've highlighted some stuff here that I really want to, 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 to uh, focus in on. He says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Again, that very graphic language. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says that Christ, in the verses just prior to this, that Christ is the image of God. He says elsewhere in his letter to the Colossians that Christ Jesus is supreme for He is the image of the invisible God. He is what we can see of the God who can't be seen. Beautiful, beautiful Pauline language. And Paul says that we ourselves, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, notice he ends verse 18, that it is as by, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He had said prior that, that there is liberty where there is the Spirit of the Lord. And that liberty brings to us, not a liberty of licentiousness, just to do whatever we want, but it brings to us a liberty of being redeemed and being transformed. He says, we ourselves are being transformed into that same image, that image of God wherein we were created and by which we are redeemed. We are being transformed. Not just, oh, from that to this, boom. He says, from one degree of glory to the next. Looking at the Greek text is beautiful because it says, from glory to glory. The idea of moving on in the glorious redemption of Christ. Not saying, great, I was this and now I'm that and that's final. But pressing on in God's transforming work in our lives through the ministry of His Holy Spirit. And this is something that's not just a passing passage here in some obscure letter that Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago. This is an idea that we ourselves have claimed to be part of our very own values as a congregation. I want to put those up on the board just to remind you of our values as a congregation. I don't think we look at these often enough. We say we value three things. And remember, these are not, uh, these are not uh, ideals. These are not, well, we probably ought us. These are things that we in our very fiber hold to. These are the foundation upon which we stand. Relational community, the last one, personal mission, but the one in the center, transformational discipleship. We believe that God is able to transform us as we follow Him. As we follow His Son Jesus, His Spirit is able to cleanse our hearts and transform us, as Paul says, into that image. From one degree of glory to the next. And these are not just values that we've picked for ourselves. We believe these are what we find in Scripture. And these are what God is doing in our midst. Paul says we're being transformed as our veils have been torn away from our faces. Our faces are being transformed. Our, our person is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. 
He speaks of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks also of the way of redemptive grace. Um, the image that I put into uh, Paul's mouth here is that of endangered faces. I, can't, I wrestled with that. I, I had a bunch of other ideas. Um, I thought real faces. Uh, I thought everyday faces, broken faces, dirty faces. All, all those I got from um, the greater context here. Of, and I think all those are fitting. But I landed on endangered faces for a number of things. Number one, to keep kind of the... Uh, the, the parallelism going, we got past tense, past tense, past tense, unveiled, transformed, endangered. I'm just crazy that way. Um, but, but also because I think it's a, that term endangered, I don't know about you, my mind always goes to the zoo. You know, where does this species stand on the endangered species list? And it's funny how they, they kind of set you up for that. This is completely aside. Um, they set you up for that because you realize it's either, oh, there are plenty of them, or, man, we're in trouble. Because <laughs> the degrees of, of, of the, the scale is, you know, there are plenty of them, and there's kind of, you know, we're on shaky ground here, and then, whoa, it's really shaky, and then, boom, we're in danger. And so there's, there's no middle ground. You either have plenty or you're in desperate want. We're running out of the pandas. Um, we just had, Atlanta's doing their job. We just had the, uh, the twins a few weeks ago. But um, I use that term endangered because I think it ought to jar us. But what Paul says in, in the, the, the context that follows this single verse that we're looking at this morning, what he says ought to jar us. I, I heard not long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, that the safest place that a person can be is in God's will. And I thought... It depends on what you mean by safe. Because I don't know if I can reconcile that with what we think of as safe with what we find in the Scriptures. In fact, um, he uh, alluded to it just a few moments ago. Aiden, normally, most weeks when we get to the uh, Thanksgiving request, you know what Aiden's going to pray for. Emery's normally going to pray for Mr. Robert. Imogene's going to pray thanking God that somebody's here, uh, one of her friends. And Aiden's always going to pray, keep us safe. And I always make the joke, man, we, we like obsess over safety. But we do. And we obsess over safety with our children. If you don't climb that tree, you might fall. If you're on to ride your bike, make sure you got your helmet, your elbow pads, your knee pads, get some shin guards, get some, you know, some Kevlar you know, to pull out over everything. Don't go off in the backyard. It's dangerous back there. Don't play with that stick. You're going to poke your brother's eye out. We have, it is usually true. Um, although with our kids, it's normally Emery's going to poke his own eye out. He doesn't, you know, he's not a safety threat to someone else. He's a safety threat to himself. While we celebrated four years of, of uh, relatively um, uneventful life just a few weeks ago, um, but what we find in the Scriptures is not a God who promises us safety. In fact, He oftentimes warns us of 
things aren't going to be all that safe. What did Jesus tell His disciples the night that He's betrayed? On Monday, Thursday, He's got them sitting around and as He's going into more theology than He's given them in the three years prior, saying, guys, you don't yet know enough. We've got to uh, not rehearse what we've learned. I've got to lay out a lot more. And he says, in fact, I can't tell at all to you now. The Spirit's going to come and He's going to lead you into it. But He tells them, He says, Guys, bear with me here. They're about to kill me. And um, they're going to throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to want nothing to do with you. And you're going to be persecuted for my sake because of my name. But it's okay because they're going to do the same to me tomorrow. You, um, you read an absolutely stunning, stunning, collection of verses in chapter 4. I remember when I was a kid growing up with the, the Jars of Clay, the band, and it was just kind of a, I, I mean, their music was great. They really were very talented musicians. But I never, I never, I never, I don't even think I got the, the significance of that name, Jars of Clay, until, you know, a few years after I'd been listening to them. But I still can't get past the, the, the beauty, but also the, um, the direness of this passage in chapter 4. I wanted to put it all up here together because I wanted to highlight a bunch of stuff that's not very safe. Paul says, but we have this treasure. He's been talking about the image of God in Christ seen, shown to us in the face of Jesus which has been given to us by which we're being transformed through the ministry of the Spirit. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Rustic old jars of clay that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. That, 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 uh, that term persecuted is amazing. Um, it means we have been drug out. We have been run off. But we're not alone. They've gotten rid of us, but somebody hasn't left us. We're struck down but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal dying bodies. So then, death is working in us but life in you. Paul does not know a safe Savior. Paul knows a crucified one. Paul does not know a tame Lord. He knows a rejected Lord. And the way of redemptive grace is found in faces that themselves have been put in danger. We live in a broken and bleeding world. And Paul says that we behold as in a mirror. Very significant image. 
we behold as in a mirror the glorious redemption of God. What is the answer to your neighbor's pains? We can say the theologically correct thing and say Jesus. But we can also answer the equally theologically correct and very biblically sound thing and say, I am. God meets a broken and bleeding world with a church that is but jars of clay being transformed, bearing the treasure of the image of God in the face of Jesus. And as Dr. Kinlaw said, no man has ever been redeemed in a vacuum. No one has ever come to Jesus apart from the influence of others. Your coworker whose life is falling apart, he will never know Christ unless he knows him through you. The gospel calls us and compels us to the lives of others. Because the way of redemptive grace has been entrusted to you and me. These humble, earthen vessels. Because God has unveiled our faces as we've come to Christ. He has transformed our faces through the ministry of His Spirit. And He is sending us out face first with endangered faces to bring redemption to His world. That's not a... Um, not a very happy gospel. I'm sorry to tell you that. There's an awful lot in the gospel to make us happy. Um, there's an awful lot about peace and joy and gladness, thanksgiving. There's an awful lot of the bearing of burdens. There's an awful lot of persecution. awful lot of rejection. awful lot of embracing those who bit uncomfortable to embrace. Remember, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He had fellowship meals with prostitutes and IRS agents. And He bids us do the same. As I... Um, As I've been reflecting back on our communication cards, I want to invite you to look at the back of them again. Just above the prayer request spot, there's a place for you to respond. As I was reflecting on this response, I I thought, you know, it's uh, it's awfully 
it's awfully difficult each week to try to come up with three things that I want you guys to either commit to or at least consider committing to. And I know you guys are busy and you got some things that, uh, you know, I don't want to always add three things to your list to do. But um, that's why sometimes I leave them blank and say, you figure it out. Um, but I was thinking this week, you know, if, if, if this is my message and I'm desiring a response from it, and if I believe, as the Scriptures lead me to believe, that God even more so desires a response, then what might that response look like? And I thought, you know what? If I can convince my people to pray something, to do something, and become something, and that's pretty... That covers the bases. Um... And so I'm going to try this out over the next few weeks, see how this works. But my, my, my call to you, my invitation to you, what, what I think God wants from us is for us to hear and now pray something, determine to do something about it. And of course, He's always making us into something. He wants us to become something. And so... Here we go. If you would look at the back of your communication card, you find that the response there is the same as the response on the back of your bulletin. Hang on to your bulletin. Remember how you, the commitments you've made to God. And remember the songs that we've sung, the scriptures we've read, the announcements that we need to be aware of in the coming weeks. Hang on to your bulletin. I tell you every week it looks it works as a great bookmark. You know, you can Pop it up here. Get the stuff out of my hands. Pop it up here. You can keep your place in your book. It's nice. And if, if uh, you got your book with you and your friend asks, what are you reading? Boom. You got an opportunity to like, hey, here, hold this for a second. I'm reading. Um, and then, of course, pull out one of my business cards because they look really nice. <laughs> Make sure you have those on you. I think it was Lindsay and Paige were visiting with a friend. Yeah, they were with the kids. And... Uh, and the friend was asking about the church, and they said, uh, "They said, oh, here, I'll give you, a, I'll give you one of my husband's business cards. They're, you know, he's real proud of them." And uh, she couldn't find one, and Paige said, "Ah, I have one in my purse. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell Adam." And Paige couldn't find one, so they, they, <laughs> they, they swore each other to secrecy that neither would tell. But I found out about it. <sighs> yes. Yes.